Good morning. The Lord be with you. Let me make a couple of comments, just pastoral comments, about what we just prayed about this election cycle um, that we've just endured. <laughs> Some I've met have been, have feel we have had the best outcome. Others are not so sure, feel like there's deep trouble. We're, um, you and I, the beautiful news about the gospel is that we get to have opinions. We really do. And as Americans, you get to vote your heart, vote your conscience, and that's okay. And, but the reality is, even though we have our opinions, uh, whatever your politics, whatever your leanings are, as a believer, we always default to the idea that we belong to some greater place than this place. And that on some level, we realize that we're double-realmed people, that we, are, uh, we hold a kind of dual citizenship. We're part of this world, but we're also part of, a, of what the Bible calls a heavenly city that will someday come here. There's a text in Revelation 21 where the writer says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. On some level, we hold passports from that city, and we're citizens of that place. So what does that mean? It means that we live by faith and not just react to stuff that happens around us, right? Uh, you've probably heard the, the biblical uh, um, verse that says, the just shall live by faith. Anybody ever heard that? The just shall live by faith. Paul uses it. It's um, used a number of times in the Bible. It actually first appeared with this guy in the Old Testament by the name of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is basically talking to God about stuff that was going on that he didn't like. And they were actually facing war, and they were going to be attacked by a, a nation that was bigger than them and more evil than they were. And they were going to be attacked and brought under subjection. And Habakkuk sees that he's freaking out. And so he prays, I'm going to quote from his Habakkuk 1, he's praying to God, he says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. How long must I crowd to you? Violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at this injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are right here before me. There is strife and conflict that abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice does not prevail. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. <laughs> He's really saying, God, this, this ain't cool, man. What's going on just is not cool. And yet, um, God doesn't answer him about that or ever in this short little three-chapter writing ever address the issue. The only thing God finally tells him is he says to him, write down, Habakkuk, this revelation and make it plain so that people may run with it. He says, the just the righteous person shall live by faith. But the basic message of the text is, is that no matter what's going on, Habakkuk, trust me. No matter what you're seeing, I'm bigger than what's going to happen politically in your context, and you must trust me. Um, I think that our response to, matter, to no matter what happens in our nation is always that we're followers of Jesus. That doesn't mean we put our heads in the sand. It doesn't mean that we don't believe there's work, deep work to be done. And it doesn't mean that sometimes when things happen around you that you're, you don't feel like you're suffering loss. But the good news is we have hope. And we bring light and we bring salt to the world. And we roll up our sleeves and we minister to the sick and we help people that are despondent and we trust for the powers of the world to come to come and bring them to bear. That for us, there's always this sense of hope in God 
the book of Habakkuk ends with this kind of, uh, where he's articulating his heart, and, but listen to how he lands on it. He said, I've heard and my heart pounded. My lips are quivering at the sound. Decay has crept into my bones. So he's still not happy. My legs are trembling, yet I will stand in the day of this calamity in the midst of that nation invading us. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, and the olive crop is failing, and the fields that are supposed to produce food are not producing food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, and all those things are falling apart, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So this is the cry of the church, right? We don't whine. We don't speak evil. We don't stand. We just stand, and we trust that God will always bring light around us. I was thinking about the church in the middle of the Dark Ages. If you don't know anything about the Dark Ages, it started about 410 after the fall of Rome. And all of the warring that started in that vacuum, people with, that were close by neighbors tried to attack and take over places. And then they, you had the Vikings from the north that were coming out into Europe and attacking, and the Goths from the Spain coming up and attacking. And there was all this warring. It went on for literally hundreds of years. 700 years. In the middle of it, the plagues broke out. The bubonic plague killing tens of millions of people. Think how you would have felt in that context. And yet the church stood and moved forward and loved people and brought grace. It finally, literally, I mean, the church got a little over, you know, they got a little too institutional, but they were really the ones that brought an end to all the chaos that was there by the time you hit the middle, or 1200s, that kind of thing. But the reality is, they estimate that 100 million people were desperately lost their lives during that 700-year period, and, and they survived. We can survive four years, or eight years, or 12 years, or whoever is coming into office. We will survive it. That was free, praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, so what I want to talk to you about um, this morning, just a little bit, is about this, this idea of creation, having a creator as our being that we honor in our lives, that we open our hearts to, this being we call God, that he's creative. Now, the reason we're addressing this is that we go by, um, as a community, our teaching team embraces what's called the lectionary. The lectionary is a list of Bible verses that co cover about a three-year period that encourages, there's a text from the Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels and Psalms that kind of encourage us to move in our teaching along a certain arc. You're not locked into it, but it kind of nudges you because as a pastor, let me be honest with you and say we tend to only want to talk about stuff we like. And so the lectionary kind of pushes you to consider some things that you don't, wouldn't have necessarily considered or taught on. And if you kind of follow it, even if it's loosely, over a period of three years, you'll cover pretty much the arc of the great story that we're part of. And so it's a good discipline to have. We're not locked into it like a Lord, but it's something that we embrace. Well, one of the texts this morning for this reading of the lectionary is from Isaiah 64, and it reads this way. For I, 65 rather, I am about to create new heavens and a new 
earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. So here in this text, what we're really seeing is that God somehow, his current job, not just something he did, but something he's doing, is creating. As the creator, he continues to create. The Bible actually starts out in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'd like to suggest to you that what he did, what he was then, is what he is still doing now. That God is still creating. This morning, we're going to dedicate the two little precious girls. And uh, one of the things that we acknowledge when we dedicate a child is the fact that they are gifts from God. That the difference in the human being, at least according to Judeo-Christian thought and theology, which we can't prove, we can just talk about it, is that God is engaged in the creation of a child. Now, yes, anatomically, physiologically, biologically, the mom and the dad are the ones that engage and, and bring this, this potential for human life to happen. But the scripture claims that the difference in a human is that they're not just body and soul and mind, but that they're spirit. And that God claims to be the one who spirits the child. So that sometime in the course of life in the womb, God breathes. The word spirit actually means breath. He breathes into this being life. So the psalmist claims that before the foundation of the world, and while we're actually in the womb, that God actually gets involved in knitting the, the being that this child becomes. And that the things that make us laugh and make us cry and the interests that we have and the talents that we have, all that kind of combination that makes us uniquely us is imagined by God. And that we're fearfully and we're wonderfully made. Such a cool thought, I think. And I always think, well, what if that's really true? I mean, how cool is that, right? And then, and then this, uh, it's Paul who says in Acts, he says, God chose the time in history in which you would be born and the exact place where you would show up, that he intended that. Which is to say, you and I are dreams of God come true. Right? Such an amazing thought to even ponder for a minute. It messes with you in such a beautiful way. But what it suggests is that God's continuing to create. The very fact that children are showing up in the world is an evidence of God being in his activity of creation. Not only that, but the Bible claims that when people actually have an experience of faith, an awakening of faith, that that's a gift from God. That no one can just choose to believe. That somehow, as a result of an engagement with God, we can come to a place of belief. We cross a kind of threshold. Jesus was said that no one can come to me unless the Father teaches them. That somehow the very fact that God makes sense to you or somehow awakens in you is evidence of his creative gesture again, not just in your physical birth, but in what's called a new birth. Some people, Jesus used the term born again. You probably heard that term, born again. It's that notion of opening up in a new way. And when you cross that threshold, Paul says it this way. If any person is in Christ, that person becomes a new creation. He's still creating. 
a new creation. The old passes, the new comes, kind of like this text talks about new and old passing, this idea, which means God's about doing stuff. That's why, you know, we love to gather together and we do stuff that's called sacrament. Those of you that have come from evangelical or charismatic backgrounds, probably the, the, we're so sacramental in that we believe in this kind of ritual. One of the things we do a lot is laying hands on people. And we put our hands on people and we say these prayers, these different kinds of prayers, We're not trusting our hands. We're not even trusting our prayers. But through the ritual of this laying on of hands, we're trusting that God is doing something. He's creating something. He's messing with stuff that he wasn't doing before we did that ritual. So that that idea of sacrament is rich in the church's history, and it's really a nod to the creative God, that God's the creator, that he's still creating We come to the table at the end of the service. We're going to put bread and we're going to put the wine. And when we put it here, we know that that in in a real sense, the bread represents the the, the work and and the, the grace of a world that gives to us. You know, it's not just wheat. And in pagan world, they would worship the gods with wheat and grapes. We worship our God with bread and wine. Why? Because it's not just from the earth. It's through the work of human hands. That somehow we're bringing our very work to him, not just the gift of the earth, but what we've done with it. And so we come, we say, this is the bread. It's not only the sustenance, but it's our work. And then it's the grapes. It's, the, it's beyond that. It's the wine, which is also our hands, but it also represents not only God's provision in, in, in our work, but wine actually stands for joy. The, the scriptures in a number of places in the Old Testament talk that God gave wine to gladden the hearts. Now, I used to be part of a a group of people that didn't believe that. That's why they weren't very happy. <laughs> I now believe it. <laughs> so, but in that moment when we're praying, at some point we say, Father, by your Spirit, fall upon these gifts like we do when we lay hands on someone. And we're trusting that God messes with that bread and messes with that cup that somehow it becomes bread plus the cup plus, and that something happens. Why? Because God's creating. We approach that table with reverence, with expectation, with hope. So this, this idea that God is creative, what that tells me is that he's very much alive. <laughs> I love that. And, and it tells me that he can be experienced. But, but, but understand, when I make that claim, I don't think he can be experienced like a thing can be experienced, like a pencil or a smartphone or a chair or, you know, the table or, or even things we can imagine like love or joy or feeling. God, if, if we put a big, big thing up here, a big box, and we're writing on the box, and we said, people... Uh, wine, bread, um, chairs, and we started marking all these things that we know. You can't put God. God is not an X. He's not a thing. He's the reason, or this being God is the reason things exist. He is the one in whom everything exists. He's not an X. He's not a thing. And you can't know God the way you can know gravity. You can't know God the way that you can experience this microphone. You can, you can draw it. You can touch it. You can feel it. It's, it's tangible. It's real. Like, that's not how God is to us. The, the only way you can really know God is by what 
um, has been described in Christian thought for centuries as participatory knowledge. Participatory knowledge. What do they mean by that? Participatory knowledge. It's this idea that God is, is, can only be encountered through a kind of attitude of the heart that wants to engage him. It is humility, openness, prayerfulness. The Bible calls it seeking. Seeking. The text says repeatedly, if you seek me, you will find me. This is the only way you can know God. It's through the seek. And he's rigged it so that if you seek, if you play the game, hide and seek, if you seek, you find. But the seek has to be done with the heart. And lots of people won't do that. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. So they won't seek. It's, it's John, St. Cross, John of, uh, uh, John of the Cross, who made the claim in the 17th century. He said, you can't know God. You can only love him. You can only encounter the creative one through this process of humble openness. This is why it's so dangerous as modern Christians to try to make the gospel a, a, a kind of um, scientific thing where we're going to prove by our rational arguments that there is a God. And we try to prove it and share this and share this and this angle and this angle and this angle. We're trying to prove to somebody rationally that there's a God. The only fruit from that is either one, you create a fundamentalist who just believes it because you said it and they just buy into it and they're going to kill people over it. Or an atheist, an agnostic. Because they know you can't prove something you can't see. So the fruit of much of the evangelical work of the modern age has produced fundamentalists and atheists. Be careful how you teach your children. What you want to do is nudge them to a dance of discovery. There's a guy, and you've heard this story because most of you have been around for a long time. I've, I've heard all my stories, but anyway from my <laughs> very limited life. One of the most wonderful stories in my memory is meeting this agnostic, brilliant surgeon. And uh, he, you know, I, I met him because his wife was coming to church and had been coming to church for years. They were about ready to move. I had never met him. I said, can I come over and meet him? I went over to their house and met him. He's a really nice man, very smart guy. And after we were talking a little while, I just asked him a little, we got into the subject of faith, you know, I'm a preacher, right? so we got on the subject of faith. And he said, well, I just, I just don't believe. He said, it's not like, a, I don't disbelieve, I just don't believe, I, you know, I'm agnostic, I don't, I'm not fighting you if you say there's a God, I'm not believing you if you say there's a God. I said, I don't even know if it matters, I'm just kind of in that space of how can you know these things, which I get. So, but here's a conviction that I have. I think God's working in every life of every person all the time. I just think they don't know it's God. So for me, evangelism is about helping people catch God who's already dancing in their lives, but they don't know it. You know, Paul talked about pagans. They just, their minds are blinded from the life of God. <laughs> I think the life of God's right with them, but their minds are blinded from it. So my hope is to get the blinders off so they can see the God who's already with them. It was, it was Augustine who said, I was searching for you everywhere. I did not know that you were with me. <laughs> I think that's true for everybody. They just don't know it, right? 
And so I'm asking, I, you know, with that conviction, I'm asking, I say, Doc, I say, come on, is there no place in your life that you ever encounter the transcendent, something that seems bigger than natural, something that seems otherly to you? There's no place in your life like that? I mean, when you had your baby and held your baby for your first time, did you feel any sense of awe? Or transcendence, or when you fell in love with your wife? I mean, is there any space? And he kind of wrinkled his brow a little bit and thought for a second. He said, well, he said, I love to go into nature. And he said, I love, he said, sometimes I'll, I'll be out in nature and I'll come across a scene or something. And it, I feel like, a, like almost a palpable something piece that's bigger than me. But that's just nature, he said. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, what if it's not just nature? I said, what if that's Jesus? Ha, ha, ha. He goes, he broke out louder. I said, no, Doc, listen to me. I said, next time you experience that, if you even remember this conversation, which in the back of my mind, I said, God, make sure he remembers this conversation. (laughs) Because the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is he stays with people. (laughs) Anyway, he's the holy hound. (laughs) Anyway, so, so I said, if you even remember this conversation, ask it. When you sense that peace, ask it. Are you Jesus? He laughed again out loud. Okay, right, okay, yeah, sure. Now, this was back in the days where there were no emails, so I got a letter. It was in the 80s. I got a letter three months later. They had moved out to the West Coast. He's up in the mountains with a few of his surgeon friends. He's coming across in those beautiful mountains out there. He said he came across around a valley. As he came around the bend, they were walking on the trail, came around the bend. He said it was the most beautiful thing, and he said the peace just hit me. I mean, it was breathtaking. He said, then I remembered our conversation. And so under my breath, because <laughs> I didn't want anybody hearing me, under my breath I said, are you Jesus? <laughs> and he said, he answered me, yes, I am. His next question, what do I do now? <laughs> this isn't proof. God isn't a thing. This isn't a knowing in a philosophy class. This isn't rational argument. This is not. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there's a creative God who's dancing with humanity, and some people don't know he's in the dance with them. And if they can ever stop a minute and actually open up in this participatory something, they're surprised by the God who's really there. I was reading couple of years ago about this Orthodox priest who had a gentleman who was a businessman in his parish who was brought up Orthodox and had no faith whatsoever. He just didn't believe in God. And he finally confessed it to the priest. He said, look, I don't believe in God. You know, it's just, this stuff doesn't make sense to me. And the priest said, well, you know what? Have you ever done, have you ever prostrated? And if, you, if you're Orthodox, you know what prostration is. It's this. This is prostration. <laughs> so they do this quite a bit. <laughs> so anyway, he said, okay, he said, yeah, I know what prostration is. He said, just do this, just as an experiment. He said, just prostrate yourself 30 times a day for 30 days. He said, don't pray. Don't even try to think about God. Just prostrate yourself and see what happens. After the 30 days, he ran back into the guy. The guy comes back to church and he said, I don't know what happened, but he said, my faith is alive. I know God is real. What happened? Participatory knowledge. If you dare to ever seek, you will 
find him. We just need to nudge people down that dead trail. There's a little movement that's going on. I ran into it. I was just over in Europe uh, two weeks ago in England. And it's called Try Praying. And basically what it does is it talks about how many people, millions of people, pray all over the place, all over the world in developed countries. You know, whether they're dealing with a family member that's sick or they're, you know, that's a few minutes before an exam they take in college or whatever. People pray. And so what it basically does is as long as you're going to pray, what if, what if prayer actually has something behind it? So why don't we talk about doing an experiment? Try praying with a little more intention. So they're having people do things like take the most important pressing thing that's in your life and write it down, and for the next week, just keep bumping that up and saying, God, I don't really believe in you. I don't know whether this is meaning anything, just talking to the air, but would you please do something with this? And people all over the island, the UK, are encountering Christ. They're telling them thing. One of the stories they tell you to just take a rock, a little pebble, and put it in your pocket, carry it around for a few weeks. And that every time you bump into the rock, just say, God, you're not real to me, but I would love you to be real like this rock is real to me in some way. I, I would like to know you. And so they just pray that. All these reports coming in. Oh, my gosh, God's making himself real to me in ways that, you know, we're talking about people that just aren't, they don't think this way. Why? This is how God is known. He's a dancer. He's a participant in life. He is not a truism. He is not a syllogism. He's not a philosophical idea. He's not a rational subject. He is beyond knowing. <laughs> Dang, that was cool. So, don't try to persuade people to have faith. Just encourage them to enter the dance. So here's what I, I need to shut up but, um, because we need to dedicate these. Maybe this is going to be sweet. But here's, here's what I'd like to encourage you to understand about this creative God. Is when you read the story of creation, you realize it's a process. And God, in the book of Genesis, when the creation starts, and nobody knows if that's literal. Who cares if it's literal? Who cares if it was seven literal days? You know, people, I, people get all freaked out about that. I think, you know, all I know, God created it. I mean, how he did it, I don't know how he did it. It mixes me up. The first day he creates light and dark. Third day he creates sun and moon and stars. I think, well, what happened there? It's confusing. Right? So, I, you know, so, you know, if you have it all figured out, God bless you. Great. I don't, I don't have it all figured out. I just think God did it. And when we get there, we'll probably be surprised how he actually pulled it off. But he did it. And in the story, though, what I love about the story, the reason I like to look at it as a story, because then you look for a little different level of meaning. Right? So if I tell you the Aesop's fable, there was this boy, and he was a trickster. And every day he'd go out and, and he'd be watching the sheep and he would wanted to be with people. So he thought, well, I'm going to get these people to come and, you know, make a joke out of them. So he started crying, there's a wolf, wolf, wolf. Everybody runs to help him. He laughs at them. Next day, thinks, I'm going to do it again and see how stupid they are. He cries out, wolf, wolf. They run out there, try to help him. No wolf. He laughs at them. This goes on for a little bit, depending on which aspect, which fable rendition you read. But one day there really is a wolf that shows up. And he cries, wolf, wolf, and nobody listens to him. And he loses everything. So the moral of the story, don't lie to people. 
cry wolf when there's no wolf there. It's very, you know, that idea of don't deception, that kind of carries with us. But you know how we Americans would read that? There once was a boy who lived, and he lived out in an area, and he took care of the sheep, and he wanted to trick people. We go, well, where? In Bixby? Where exactly, do, where exactly do you live? Who were his parents? What was his name? Who cares? The, the details are what's keeping you from the meaning. Seven little days, seven little days, 6,000 years ago. Okay, if you, I mean, that might actually be true. I mean, God is God, right? I mean, he could have created, a, he created, according to the story, Adam, who was older than dirt, right? And, and you could see stars that were billions of light years away, so maybe God just created it all old. I mean, that's possible. But you know what? Who cares? Really? His name was Joe. 427 East 71st Bixby. Okay? What does that even mean? Who cares? I'm preaching. I shouldn't be meddling instead of preaching. But here's this God who creates. What I love about the story is he shows up in the creation over the surface of darkness and void confusion, which tells me this. Our creative God is drawn to those who hurt. And he's not thrown because your life is absolutely in destruction. He, it says, hovered over that darkness and hovered over the surface of the deep. The actual word hover means to brood. The image is like a chick, chicken, kind of nestles down. <laughs> It's like God's sitting on your life, man. He's just there until something hatches. And God is present, which tells you that, see, in our minds we think, if God was really present in my life, I wouldn't be in trouble. Honey, listen to me. God is a very present help in times of trouble. So when trouble comes, you ought to think, oh my gosh, trouble's here. You must be near because you're present in trouble. We don't think that way. We think, we must not, God must hate me because I'm in trouble. Or listen to this one. You know this one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. We don't really believe that because we think if he was really with us, we would not be anywhere near that valley of the shadow of death. That's what we think intuitively. But listen, creative God loves jumping in your crud. He loves it. So if you're in trouble, lift up your head. God is near. And then the next thing you see real quickly is that he's waiting for the word to be grabbed. And God said, and God said, and God said, God loves you to dare to love his word. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. He loves it. And I know it's boring. A lot of it's boring. I mean, I read it. I mean, I talked to, I used to read it through every year through the one-year Bible. I read it through every year now in a different way, but I read it through, and I have often in the past told the Lord, Lord, you know, honestly, really boring. <laughs> it's not like he doesn't know what you think. Oh! <gasps> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and you can try to jack yourself up and say, yeah, it's exciting. No, it's not. Most of it, it's, but if you stick with it every once in a while, I remember I felt the Holy Spirit say this one time, if you'll just stick with it, even if it's boring, every once in a while, I'll peek at you through the text. And so that's what it's like. It's like, you start reading the Bible and it's really boring. But if you stick with it, once in a while something happens cool. <laughs> that was free. <laughs> but dare, dare, dare to grab his word, his promises. And dare to ask other people to pray for you. Because sometimes you'll hear a word that isn't in written, but it's some impression through some believer's heart that will nourish you. I, my wife and I had um, three boys, and we thought we were done having children. We thought we struck out <laughs> in terms of girls, right? And so we, we, she would have loved to have a girl, but we just thought, nah, we're not, not get four boys. I mean, I'm not, if you're four boys, bless you, you got bless you boys. Okay. But we just thought, nah, let's retire, right? So my wife is standing on the platform during a rehearsal for the music, and there was a guy in our church that was kind of, and this may sound strange to you, but kind of prophetic. He would see things. And much of what he's seen, some of it was nothing, and some of it was something. And he would talk to me. He said, you know, Ed, I saw something else. I was just in prayer. I saw this. And so anyway, he, said, he told me, he said, I was literally looking at the platform. He said, I wasn't really doing anything. I just looked at the platform. And I saw a little girl, five years old, standing next to Gail. Blinked my eyes, she was gone. He said, I think you're going to have a baby girl. I said, well, Bill, probably not. <laughs> Two months later, Gail's pregnant. Shazam! Nine months later, here comes this baby girl. When she comes out, within hours, she starts turning blue. Something's wrong. And they got her on more oxygen, more oxygen. She had gotten an infection in her lungs. Another baby had just died just a couple days before. And then the doctor called us in and she said, I hate to bring you the bad news. But she said, I don't think she's going to make it. Had to run 100% oxygen, which isn't good. Not for very long. And here's what we prayed. We saw God, the God of chaos over our lives, knew he was with us, even though it was trouble, because he's present in trouble. We started rehearsing the way God has been faithful to us. And not only did we do that, we thought about his promises. We remembered this other word, where Bill had looked up on the platform. He didn't see Gail with a newborn in her arms. He saw Gail with a little five-year-old girl standing next to him. And I cannot tell you how much hope that gave us. Now, I get we could have had all that and she could have died, but it really helped us. And she didn't die. She's alive to this day. Still drives me crazy, but she's wonderful. <laughs> My point is, is that in the creative arc, God gives words. Look for his word. Then two more quick points. When he starts moving, it isn't with life. He doesn't make trees come, doesn't make humans come, doesn't make animals come. He just separates the stuff, the confusion. The water from the ground, the sky from the ground, the, the, um, the light from the darkness. He just starts adjusting things. And a lot of times when you ask God to move in your life, what he does, first of all, is not fix it like you want to. He starts separating stuff. You, know, you say, oh, God, fix my relationship with my adult son. He's making me crazy. Please do something. And instead of God just fixing it, what God does is say, let's talk about how you think about him. 
Let's talk about what your expectations are. And he starts messing with you. And he separates stuff. And it's painful. In fact, what I've discovered is that most of God's activity in your life is hurtful. I know you're excited about that. But his ministry is to tear down, uproot, destroy, and overthrow, is what Jeremiah said, then build and plant. We want him to just build and plant. But sometimes when God moves in your life, he has to separate all the garbage out before he can do his life-giving work. And then life comes. So my encouragement to you is simply this. Look for the creator. Let's stand. Precious God, Father, Son, and thank you that you call us to yourself. God, as we lean into you, we don't lean into you the way we lean into a chair. We, we lean into you in a kind of way that's like a free fall. It's not the kind of knowing that most of us are used to. It's an unknowing knowing. And so I pray for everyone that's here that that still is wrestling with their faith, help them know that's okay. People that don't get it or don't feel like they believe it, that's okay. Then in reality, faith is kind of the flip coin of doubt, and it's when they're both kind of together that we have this dance. We still see you by faith, and you love that. That's the way you arranged it to be. But help us commit simply to the dance. And Father, as we come to the moment where we celebrate the Lord's table, which is a table of thanks, help us understand that we're celebrating the mystery of you with us and us with you that's best seen in Christ. We ask through Christ our Lord. Everybody said? Amen. Now let's declare our faith. We believe in God the Father is where we start out. And notice we say we believe. It doesn't say we know because we believe. We don't know. These are not propositional truths that we can force anybody to believe. We don't want to force people to believe because we don't want to be fundamentalists or atheists. What we're doing is dancing with this idea that as best we know has been handed over to us, this is our God. He is Father. He is Son. He is Spirit. He has come in Christ. He is coming back again. He is brought us this organization called the church. And it gives us a communion with all of these saints that have gone before us. We believe in the forgiveness of sin. We believe in a resurrection of the body and a life to come. This is what we believe. So we lean into it. We fall into it. You know, do we know it in an absolute sense? Nope. But we believe it. So let's declare our faith. We believe Thanks in God. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.